This is the 451. I'm Summer Brennan. I'm Jesse Hirsch. And I'm Jonathan Mann. And we are a podcast for the resistance. So I did not watch his speech. I didn't either. High five. Neither did I. Oh, oh good. We are, we are a great podcast. <laughs> that's so that's three for three for three. Three for three. But the thing that was the thing that was bugging me most last week, and I know we we've been away for a minute, but like the thing there's a lot to be bugged about. But the thing that really got me was like it drove me bananas to see people reviewing his speech as though it was like it was a great speech. He really turned things around with this speech. The the idea that Trump could with a speech even manage to get people to say that really just like it made me so angry. That and doesn't sad. make logical sense. It's not sports casting. Like, this isn't a comment on, like, oh, that was a good play that whatever sports person <laughs> right. just did. This, this is a great analogy for me because I don't. <laughs> you did the sport. <laughs> you did the sport. You well made done. it win. Yeah, right. Um, Although that's a pretty good, like, analogy for this. That's, like, that's basically what they're saying. Like, you right. did good speech, you know? <laughs> yeah. Good speech you did. Like, yeah. No, that is what people are doing, and I, I don't think that's appropriate in this instant because, unfortunately, I mean, that everybody already talked about this this was the thing on Twitter and it frustrated me. I, I didn't watch the speech. I read the speech. I read the commentary on the speech and then my brain exploded and I had to walk away. But um, he's put the bar so low yeah. that if he's able to just speak in like semi-complete sentences that don't sound like a drunk 10-year-old, you know, then um, actually I'm sure most drunk 10-year-olds sound a lot better than Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. And their policies are probably favorable. But um <laughs> You know, yeah, it's it's very sad that people are like, wow, wow, he didn't, like, you know, jump off of the podium and strangle anyone. Like, what a success. It's great. And that's that's a sad state of affairs. My song for that day was uh, He Didn't Poop His Pants. That was my, <laughs> that was like, that seemed sounds, to be the that sounds, that sounds like a keeper. We don't know that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We don't know that for sure. <laughs> Another week with Trump's body. Oh, no, no. Uh, cut, cut. Um, <laughs> What, what do you think about that argument that the, a lot of the people who got really excited about his speech and were said, oh, he's presidential, were pundits versus reporters, and then the next day it was up to the reporters to kind of actually parse out what his words mean, um, and that we shouldn't put too much, uh, say that journalism failed so, so significantly because those weren't the actual investigative type people who were making I, I those comments. I can buy that. That seems yeah. accurate. I think yeah. that's, I mean, because in a way, the a pundit's well, it, most of the time, a pundit's job is to be kind of the sportscaster, play-by-play mm-hmm. play of like, oh, wow, you know, oh, she really slipped up today, or no, she's she's seeming much more presidential with that whatever thing she did. So, yeah, I guess um, I just, she, just my imaginary world. I'm no, like, that was this nice. This is a different I, person. I, it made me feel good with. for a minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that that's fair. And gosh, it's so, con- the, the world of news consumption right now is so confusing of everything being available all the time. And the, I mean, this is such a boon for, unfortunately, for the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, mm-hmm. I just think back and I remember when the, um, that was that tragedy, the plane that disappeared. Uh, what was it? The, is it Malaysian Airlines? Something? Yeah. Sorry yeah. for not remembering God, that the, seems so long ago. It does. But I remember there was this, um, this constant, like, which seemed to me manufactured 24-hour news cycle yeah. about mm-hmm. it. Like, there was no new information. But right. it was just, like, constant, 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 constant coverage. And I have heard people comment that there was, like, a bit of a... It was a sad day for, for sort of journalism at that point because it was like, what? why is this happening? I understand that it's a big deal, it's tragic, but this is not... News this doesn't moment. need to cover the news like twenty four seven. Right, right. But well, now, and I'm sure, and, and I feel like there was a lot of other things happening at that time too that yeah. weren't getting any kind of press. Right, and yeah, but now there is this new crazy thing that happens every hour, and it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a thing. So it is sometimes a good idea to wait for the measured response from actual journalists who are going to fact check something and aren't just commenting on like. Okay, like Sean Spicer's suit fit him better today. Good job. You know, or like whatever, whatever it is. It's also interesting to me, like, I'm guilty of this as anybody, I suppose. Well, I suppose, and it's true, like, especially during the election. Like, I followed, you know, the horse race of it with with great glee, in a sense, you know. Glee? And, and, yeah, you know, yeah, I did, mm. to be honest. You know, like, listening... <laughs> okay. 
listening to all the po- listening to like 538 podcasts and NPR politics podcasts and like right. and they they would do like an emergency podcast about something that happened and it's like blah, 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 and you know and and but it but it is like this horse race thing and it's like to to have it dominate the news coverage and be the, become this narrative that we all kind of like get sucked into what does any of it matter, I guess? I, you know, what does it matter that he gave this speech and that Pundit said that it was great? Does that, does it convince anybody? Does it have any kind of, bear, like, does the media narrative that gets spun have any impact at of all? Of course, I, it's I, a huge I, impact. I yeah. mean, like, the media narrative is how people experience reality, Yeah. you know? I mean, that it, it matters quite a lot. Like, that's how people get the idea that, you know, one candidate is kind of harmless and you shouldn't take him that seriously. Right, and another right. candidate is somehow like crooked. Super corrupt and yeah. <laughs> right, and that in ways that get kind of, you know, and then because of that like dominant narrative, things get tacked on to that. I mean, I heard liberal people saying that like Bill Clinton had, had appointed um, Clarence Thomas. And I was like, no, that's not what happened. Like, you know, but you start to get, you get swept up in a narrative and you can just tack all these things onto it because of the dominant media narrative. Pundits, like what is a pundit? Like what? Like what? What? What defines? I don't know. I mean, I listened to my the first reactions to the speech that I heard were on NPR. I was just in an Uber when it happened, and you know, I think it, being it was just the one, young urban man that you are, right? Exactly, <laughs> just, just adrift in the city. Um, and uh, but the way the way that that I mean, she she was a an anchor person, I guess you'd say, uh, whatever the host of um one of their show of all things considered mm-hmm. um i mean and she was she was definitely gushing about the speech she, oh. it, it, it was really? very, yeah no it was it, it, and i was like whoa he must have really you know changed the entire game and it sounds like it was basically the substance was the same stuff that we've been hearing all along but he right. just like acted like a grown-up for a second that's the thing that that's the thing that boggles so is that, that a pundit i don't know i always wonder it's like what gives a pundit like the right and the, for us to want to even trust what they say, you know, like... Because that's what they're hired to do. I mean, they're a talking head. They're somebody that has, you know, like, that's their job is to comment on something as it's happening, right? Right. So, like, <laughs> that's, that's what they do. And people enjoy that. I mean, that's why people listen to political True. podcasts, you know. Um, I guess we're pundits. We're pundits. <laughs> no. <laughs> we're just people, man. Um, no, I mean, that's the thing is it's like people have different levels of expertise that get them to be a talking head, right? And some people I find usually have smart things to say and some people don't. And some people who I generally like sometimes say stuff that I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you, you know, somebody, uh, we're still talking about this Trump speech, but, you know, someone tweeted a picture of like a Nazi rally and they were like, all in all, other than the content of the speech, it was very well delivered. Right. Speech, you know, and, <laughs> and I and I guess it's just it frustrates me because it's like, are people not catching up to the fact that like his threats need to be taken seriously because he does seem to try to carry them out. But in general, like uh, sort of loose promises of this or it's kind of pretending to be lighter on that, like don't really hold much weight. Like the man, the man read a speech like it was probably yeah, written it was teleprompter like the phonetically written. I'm joking. <laughs> about it, but like, you know, we, we saw him on like live TV. Right. I mean, I, this I've seen like replayed, but where he was practicing reading the speech to people in a car. Right. Yeah, yeah, and I so it's that. just it's not like he you know he didn't write it. Who knows how many times he practiced this thing. I mean, so it's like, okay, he can fulfill the basics of, like, what a politician (laughs) needs to do, do. and he's president of the United States, so I don't know, yeah, um, yeah, when I guess you said pundits, I was thinking more talking heads, like, I was thinking, like, Carl Bernstein, Mm. like, or is it Bernstein or Bernstein, I never say his name right, but... He'll forgive you. Thank you, thank you, I hope you do, Carl, because I'm surely he's listening. I usually listen when he has, when he's talking, I'm like, oh, what does he have to say? I mean, I agree with him all the time, but he's incredible. Yeah, so, um, there's been a lot... There's been a lot, there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. <laughs> well, happened. it's been two weeks, and so there's so much that it's kind of impossible to to, to, to get it all. Lots happened. One of the things that happened was... Um, it's that, Tuesday, by the way, everybody, when we're recording. Don't tell them that. <laughs> well, well, no, they need to know where we are in the news I know, cycle, I'm just, right? I'm just joking, I'm just joking. Yeah, there's like some horrible thing that happens. Um, no, I shouldn't say this. You know, where I'm staying is near Los Alamos um, with the nuclear labs, and um, this is a bad joke, but I was watching, we were watching the planet Earth series thing on Saturday and um, mm. it like went out for a second like the TV just stopped working and he was mm. like oh something happened with the TV I'm like or oh no <laughs> <laughs> I'm like or civilization just ended something happened you know 
I'm having that same kind of moment. I guess to a certain extent, I've always had like a catastrophic mind think way <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of, of approaching the world. Like driving home yesterday, actually from the midwife um, with with my wife and child. Your very pregnant wife and child, yeah. My very pregnant wife drive, driving towards the city. And I'm just like imagining like what if a nuclear bomb like went off right now in the city? Like and that's my brain just kind of is that's where my brain is right now it's just mm-hmm. like it's there i don't um, think people listening should be should be especially concerned that there's going to be a surprise nuclear attack i just want to say that <laughs> um that I like i said like i said <laughs> catastrophic mind it's my own catastrophic mind and i'm the one that said we were watching tv and i was like or civilization is ended but i um <laughs> i just from from what little well, not what, from what experience I have with nuclear disarmament um, from my years doing that at the UN, I don't think that I, I see no reason to be more alarmed, honestly, about that ha- happening without warning than six months ago. Um, summer side note, one time that nuclear lab that you're talking about yes. in an unnamed part of this country, uh, I, I got lost and I drove onto their sprawling campus and had to deal with security. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with people knowing that I'm near Los Alamos right now. They've been hiring. It's what's interesting. They're, what? Where? What? what? <laughs> um, I'm not connected to the lab. Um, they're they're in the middle of this huge hiring boom, but that has been going on since the Obama era as well, the last couple of years of like 2,000 new scientists or something that they've been hiring. And so it's kind of interesting. Something, you know, stuff's going on up there. Lots of um, work to be done. <laughs> arsenals to modernize and stuff like that but as we recall from like whatever it was a month or two ago when we recommended that terrifying article about mm-hmm. the like 1980s era software mm-hmm. on, on yeah. our nuclear arsenals I, there is um i agree that there's work that needs to be done so anyway what were we talking about <laughs> well do we want to do we want to talk about what's going on right now what is going on right now we could talk about russia when there's a lot there we could talk about the the new uh, muslim ban Mm-hmm. We could talk about Affordable Care Act. Yep, we could talk about the A. What is it? The A C H A. What's that? The the Republicans' um, plan for the Obama. Affordable Care. Ha 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 ha! Act like <laughs> what is it called? I don't know. I forget. Now. That was my really great joke. I'm here all day. American Healthcare Act. Oh, so the A H C A. Yeah, A H C A. The AHCA. Which is also the acronym for the American Healthcare Association. They can't do that. <laughs> Okay. It's not allowed. <laughs> All right. We're calling it here on this podcast. All of it can't happen. Jesse, you before mentioned that you are you are a beneficiary of the the ACA, as am I. So um, I am invested in this particular topic. I don't know. Which of these topics do we want to... Well, like, you know, like I was saying to you guys before when we were speaking, uh, it's hard when we do a weekly or semi-weekly podcast to kind of address all the issues of what's the latest because it's never the latest. Um and, you know, we record a few days after before we release usually. So I don't even know. I mean, Russia, Russia. <laughs> yeah. How are well, So Summer, what what is what is your what are you how are you feeling? I mean, that, that was like one of the biggest things that you were um, thinking about be, before you sort of stepped back a bit. So like what right. given everything new that's that's happened, what's where are you at with that? Because this was a topic that I had some familiarity with and was concerned about early on in this whole post-election fun times. I feel more like the news is just like mainstream news and other people are sort of catching up to stuff that myself and other people that are familiar with this were already talking about and concerned about. There are new revelations in particulars of, okay, this person said that this conversation took place or whatever. And of course we have um, Jeff Sessions, you know, lying under oath about his contact with the Russian ambassador. And it seems like people are having a bit of a hard time separating the actual significant fact from conspiracy theory a little bit. And I, I, I understand why that's difficult. And again, I have taken a step back from the social media. But, you know, like, um, for example, when the, the Russian ambassador to the UN passed away recently, you know, I got a lot of messages right, from people right. that were like, oh my God, it's murder. And this was somebody that I worked with. So people are very quick to say, oh, clearly this is what's happening. And I think it's very important that people are welcome to have their theories, you know, or say this certainly looks suspicious to me. But I think people need to make sure that they keep those corralled in the theory portion of the ranch, <laughs> the mental ranch or whatever. It's my Southwest metaphor now. What you're saying is just to, to take like a sort of measured approach and just like, 
like as things go from being sort of speculation to uh, having more evidence and the evidence being presented and that kind of it's difficult kind of though especially like. if you use Twitter as much as I mean I, I'm on Twitter much more than I used to be <laughs> Twitter's not good for for measured no it's not I think a large portion of our audience are active on Twitter maybe people that just watch the news and read the New York Times or various magazines are going to have a different view of this and there's less of the sort of conspiracy machine going on behind it. And now I'm going to quote, like, again, another 19th century novel, but, like, speculation is the enemy of calm. There's definitely, like, a like something... It feels as though there's a pretty steady, like, drip, drip, drip of new revelations that come out sort of every week that are, you know, like, the New York Times will, will post, like, one or two... Sort of the stories that we're all talking about. Yeah, the stories that we all talk about. Sort of bombshells, mm-hmm. for lack of a better, for lack of a better word. Is that is that like the normal sort of um, pace of investigation on the part of reporters? Is that like deliberate on the part of someone or of people leaking? Yeah, you know, people leaking or whatever. Or oh, I've I've considered that too. Yeah, uh, whether whether this is part of some grand strategy and there's still like a bunch of stuff that's just going to be fed little by little. That's a fair guess. Yeah, I hope. Um, yeah, what do what do we think of this idea that uh, there are all these you know deep deep state loyalists still working that that they're all responsible and that for for these leaks that we're getting and that Steve Bannon is vowing to you know dismantle the administrative state and ferret out all the leakers. What I've been wondering about that is who's left. You know, like who who gets put in these roles when when all the experts are gone? I think nobody. I think I think the whole idea Sycophants? is that. I, yeah. I mean, I think the whole idea for Bannon is that he just wants to right you know, as right. few but, people as possible. Bannon transparently wants Sh- to destroy. No, sure, but like the right. the entire concept of like a huge sprawling <laughs> military complex that we have here. I mean, they're they're just just for it to function on some level, which they need it to in order to implement a lot of the things they want to do. You know, mm-hmm. there there have to be people up top. Yeah, but I mean, you can find people that are loyal to Trump that have military experience. Look at Flynn. I mean, yeah. Flynn's I mean, out, it, but like it just doesn't seem like there's that many, though. It doesn't you know? actually. I mean, I, I mean, he's know. having trouble finding people that want to work, that want to work for him. You know, Flynn, Flynn, and I think I asked this last time, but Flynn is such an interesting example to me because what's and there might be a perfectly reasonable explanation for this, but like, what's different about Flynn? Like Flynn resigning versus Sessions. What do you mean? You know, Sessions lied under oath, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is bad. I mean, that's a bad thing to do in in our yep. country. Or it used to be. But but yet all he did was sort of recuse himself. People that I know are like, I, I think he'll be out by the end of the week. Oh, interesting. But I don't know. I don't know about that. It doesn't feel like there's a massive groundswell of opposition. You know, like it, it almost seems like they tossed us a bone by having him recuse himself rather than. And it sort of, and it sort of, it sort of killed the, which is, which is sort of what I was wondering about Flynn. Like, what was different about Flynn's situation? I guess maybe it was something internal. I don't know, but like. Or maybe they didn't have that middle step. They didn't have a, recu- right. you know, like a case, a, a case to recuse sure. himself from. So it was really all, all they, they had. had. Right. That's an interesting. That's an interesting thought. What all of these things have in common is is pointing towards collusion with the Trump campaign comment administration, you know, that in ways that are anti-American, right? Um, and by anti-American, I don't mean like like conceptually, ideally, I mean like politically anti-American, right? Like what you're saying so, is they're pointing towards like Trump colluding with Russia during the election. Yeah, of course. Like that's right. that's the point. Yes. And, and that's, of course, the issue with, with Sessions. And, you know, meeting with the Russian ambassador to the United States, there's nothing wrong with right. that. Like he meets, he's mm-hmm. like as everybody keeps saying, he's a very memorable, like, like big personality <laughs> man, right? It's the greater context of it, and w- when taken in context, it is worrying. And of course, if it's something that you deny, because if you're gonna feel yeah. the need to lie about, right? right. And so it's that's the big yes. thing. Yes, and the question is, you know, by lying about it, what follow up questions was he avoiding by saying no? Yes. If he said yes, then the follow up questions are about what? It's two things. It's like the fact that it's pretty much clear now that Russia, in some capacity or another, set out to interfere with the election. And and that in concrete capacities that we know about and yeah. concrete capacities that we know about. That's pretty that's like solid. And that during the same time, the Trump campaign, which was an, an actor in said election, was having conversations with them in a, in a whole variety of ways. And so, yeah, it's like, right. If I was going to play Michael Moore in this, yeah. and just like <laughs> speculate about what happened, like <laughs> from my my informed opinion, um, which is only that an informed opinion, but I think they were absolutely colluding. 
um, I think it's pretty it's pretty yeah. obvious um, that they that this was that they were either you know found common interest or were actively recruited to do this to the United States. Um, that's my yeah. Yes. <laughs> something was something was definitely done to the United something States. Something was done to the United States. Um, and then what? What about the uh, the wiretapping? That thing that, is kind that, of, that's like. But I mean, the way people are talking about it is that this is this is a line that you know that he's he's crossed the uncrossable line and um you know oh, every, again? every time Has I, he done so? right. this is like literally the thousandth time. It, yeah, yeah. I, I I can't get myself worked up like I no, used to. No, I mean <laughs> about about these uncrossable um, lines. Part of it was the tweets themselves were just like It was remarkable you know, for sure. Uh, so it was like even for him quite unhinged, which is saying something. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty clear that there's like a mentally unbalanced person occupying the presidency. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, people who say, like, don't call Trump mentally ill because it's mean to mentally ill people. And just because somebody's, like, cruel or disorganized or stupid or whatever doesn't mean that they're mentally ill. But I do you, I do think that he's mentally you mean ill. It, I mean, you, mean it, you mean it and you know what you, you mean when you mean it. Do I? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, but I, I think that's what you're saying. Is like you're not, that's going a bit it's, far. It's not like you're just saying, like, oh, he's crazy and using, using the word words. in a pejorative way. Right. You're saying, no, no, like it's impossible to know but like it seems likely no, i think it's clear that i mean all i mean all mental illness diagnosis is of the opinion of a, of a professional right. which i am not it's not like you can take like a biological test for the most part and say whatever it's, it's just somebody meets certain criteria right. and there are people that say you know the whole like i have not treated mr trump however my opinion is you yeah know, there are people that say he is people that say he yeah. isn't whatever On both sides, but he's yeah. yeah right it just seems mentally unbalanced in a way that i think is like 25th amendment worthy yeah. Um, is it 25th or 24th? <laughs> 25th. 25th. You know, yeah. the un, un, unable to fulfill his duties and unable to say so. His his doctor did release those medical <laughs> records and, oh, that, and said, that said he was fine. And that guy looked like so. really, really credible. And Trump would be, said Trump <laughs> mm-hmm. would be the healthiest president ever. Ever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's going to live to 300, he said. Did any of you guys see George W. Bush talking on C-SPAN about his book that just came out? I saw I saw some clips, yeah. I did. Um. I thought it was so. I ended up watching it. <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, I, I missed the beginning, but um, one of my favorite weird things about the modern, like surreal landscape that we find ourselves in is George W. Bush painter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm I did art. I went to art school, so like I, I don't know. It's very weird to hear George W. Bush talking about like phthalo blue and you know <laughs> mixing his oil paints and and the difficulty of capturing this or that and because there's like phrases that i relate to and it's very strange hearing them come from him and i don't know um but he's a person whose like mental abilities i questioned and i you know is our children learning and like all the kind of funny things we used to joke about with george w bush and i don't like decisions that he made and i i do feel that you know he wasn't totally qualified on a variety of levels for what he did, but it's just a different, it was just a reminder of how, what a different world that is from what we're dealing with now. I, I had a sort of, I mean, I, I, that was like another thing that was like sort of making me upset this week was, was a sort of rehabilitation of, of George Bush in, oh, yeah. in light of, in light of, uh, the, you know, our current quagmire, like, um, because it, it I makes agree. me worried that like, it makes me worried that we're going to be, uh, ten years from now, and looking back on Trump, and and, and like, you know, and and looking at him with rose tinted glasses, like like Bush was a bad president and did a lot of really bad things, and like, mm-hmm. you know, led us into a war that that he was completely manufactured, and and like, you know, economic crisis, everything, economic yeah. crisis, hundreds of thousands of people dead, like, so you know, uh. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's but, it's but, a. But can I point sorry. something out though? Yeah, like, yeah, sure. Can I point something out? Like p- even part of the reason why this podcast exists is everyone is saying like this is different. Like we've had bad presidents sure. before. We've been in bad straits. We've had you know like the United States. I mean, as a, as a superpower, sometimes people at least used to say well, maybe the world's only remaining superpower. Um, you know, is involved in all kinds of things that are um, bad, right? But just to be put it plainly, but um, but that there's something about this man, Donald Trump, his presidency and his administration that is unprecedented and different than anything else we've ever dealt with. And I think that's absolutely true. No, I would agree. And with I think that, that I mean, you guys I agree. agree. Right. And so yeah. I think what's interesting is I totally understand people's concern 
about, like, quote-unquote, the rehabilitation of George W. Bush. But I don't think that that's what's happening, personally. And I, I think... Um, it is strange to me to, to sit there and watch this man that I know that I just so doggedly opposed so much of what he did while he was president and watch him talk about his painting and feel this creeping sympathy. It, I do mm-hmm. like I, I just, it's it's more like a personal thing that I don't like that disconnect that's that's so easily created by time and distance and by having a much worse president now. Right? Sure. But also at the same time, I mean, I think I think it's dangerous for people to feel the need to dehumanize their enemies. The fact that you can listen to somebody talk about something that you relate to and to mm-hmm. see their humanity and even feel sympathy for them or empathy or pity or whatever, um, it's like that's a positive human impulse. But the question then becomes making sure that that doesn't influence your other opinions. Like it doesn't say, well, I guess it's okay to go kill a bunch of Iraqis or people in Afghanistan because I like that you're talking about paint. It's like maintaining that that separation of seeing somebody's humanity and know that the majority of people, you know, love their families and are, I mean, you know, do are able to do humane things in, in areas of their life. Um, I don't know. I, I do understand the concern about like those things, but I, I think it's important to remember. Like I know a friend of mine who worked on Capitol Hill, and she said that Paul Ryan like always used to buy coffee for the interns. You know, right. Democrat, Republican, like they'd be in line, and he would just look behind, see a bunch of interns, and be like, you know, coffee's for everyone. And yeah. um, it doesn't mean that his policies are okay. I don't need to humanize like Paul Ryan because he is human. Mm-hmm. And he's going to, you know, and so I think there are some people that, that really fill all the edges of their being with as much evil as possible. And I think one of them is president right now. But mm-hmm. um, in general, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's an interesting question. And I, I understand your concerns about it. I think and, I understand what you're saying, too. And I, I mean, I would tend to, I would definitely tend to agree that, like, you know, I have to think about people um, as babies, you know, and I try to imagine them. <laughs> no, I do this. Yeah, too. I try to imagine them. I, I yeah, try to imagine yeah. like their mother holding them, just as babies or whatever. Little baby, baby Bannon. You know, Ew. yeah, and well, and, <laughs> you know, and like he looks just like right if now. If you could, if you, <laughs> just oh small. God. If right. you could, like, if you could, no, if you could sit down with Steve, with Bannon and like be and like have a real like in-depth conversation about his childhood and what it was like and who and and what that like can you come oh, can, can, can you come away from that conversation and not feel some level of empathy for that person i think is sort sure. of what you're saying summer in a way i mean in a, in a sense i mean and i think like using bannon as an example of like seeing humanity in people <laughs> is like it's so weird it's not a great thing i mean like you know my my personal beliefs are that everyone has that humanity, although I think that there are people for different reasons who it gets kind of crowded crowded out. I mean, that gets into like sort of the realm of like religion or spirituality mm. or something in a sense because you're like, do people, you know, are there, I don't know. But then again, you, you know, looking at members of the current administration, it's really easy to be like, okay, evil exists. Mm-hmm. Like I see it now, mm-hmm. you know, well, I mean. <laughs> but but yeah. an interesting an interesting one is, uh, remember when we had a guest on here who was talking, who, um, Emily, who worked for Jason Chaffetz, Chaffetz right? Yeah. And, Chaffetz, yes, sorry. Uh, and get it right. <laughs> I'll never get it right. I'll never ever get it right. But but that he was a really nice guy, and that everyone he worked with all just was like, you know, this this is a, a decent human being who will always try and help us out. And we've just spent the last few weeks being like, oh, this guy oh, is such so a huge monster, right? Like how how could you be like this? Mm-hmm. And I mean, those two truths coexist, you know? Yeah, I mean that's and that's the tricky thing, and I think that you know. Um, when I was a little more active on Twitter, there was a lot of people paying attention to my tweets. And if I said anything that people could construe as sympathetic to um, mm-hmm. pretty much any Republican, but especially anyone in the administration, I think one time I was even like, God, I feel bad for Trump. And that was just more like a, like a, I don't want to describe it. Like, <laughs> like, like he's in this, over his head or something. I'm making yeah. this gesture right now that it's like a, like a, I don't know, maybe that's just my like overactive like empathy glands or whatever <laughs> you know but like i just um people kind of freak out and they're like yeah. don't you know you, you can't do that and, and some people sent me quite long messages about why i shouldn't I in any way like humanize the enemy and like i said before like you, you, the enemy is human like you know they are they are regular people i mean it's hard when i look at kelly and conway i feel like i can see the evil like oozing out of her you know, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't like her. Although mercifully, she hasn't been on TV as much. But um, 
But anyway, but this was just to say, this is back to the George W. Bush thing, is it's like, it is, it is, it's that line between acknowledging somebody's humanity and seeing the ways in which you might even relate to them or they're a fallible person, maybe they're even capable of remorse. It doesn't make the things they did okay. It doesn't make, it's like, let's, let's elect George W. Bush. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> like, I just... Let's, let's appoint him to something, like, you know, no. I just had a thought, and, and I and sort of never really thought about this this way before, but, like, there's, like, a, there's like a distinction between people that are not, you know, that are kind and warm on a personal level, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. like you know, horrible and evil and uh, destructive on a, you know, on a legislative level or on well, a... Supposedly Jeff Sessions, everyone, he was the like too likable to vote yeah. against. Right. right. And, and, and an interesting corollary to this, uh, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, oh, that by, by yes. all accounts, <laughs> by all accounts, or many accounts, not all, but, but many accounts that I've heard, um, is not particularly... Uh, warm or, or yeah, like to his to hit the people that work for him, and yet you know the 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 policies and things that he works for. He constantly talks about you know the thirty million children that are living in poverty, and he constantly w- wants to shine a light on that kind of stuff. So there's an interesting thought there. So you're saying he's a good guy, but he might be a bit crotchety in his like immediate personal interaction. Yeah, which is sort of like in some ways the exact opposite of someone like Paul Ryan, right? Like he'll buy coffee for everybody, sure. but he wants to take healthcare away from poor people. Like right. But I also think a really important point about all this is that the pe- like who people perceive as being part of what they would call us, like the the us group to an individual. Um, you know, there's somebody that could be like a wonderful pillar of their their white community and very nice to their family and their wife and their friends and be like a, a horrible racist who, you know, right. and have terrible ideas because they think that, you know, the people that deserve their respect like ends at a certain point. And I think that um, most people have that boundary somewhere, whether they draw it like at national borders or religious borders or, or what have you, you know, the people that fall within their um, mantle of kindness and then the people that don't and how they react to both those. And I think that does say something about somebody's personality. There, there was an interesting example of that, that that New York Times article that came out a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, about, um, God, what state was it in? Kentucky or Indiana, um, where a manager of a local Mexican restaurant yes. Um, yes. had been detained Kentucky. by ICE. I and think it was Kentucky. Was it Kentucky? Yeah. Oh, and, and everyone was. He was like this, this beloved. He was a pillar of the community. Of the community. Right? And the so the white community once he got detained, all of a sudden we're like, what? Oh no, not this yeah. guy. No, we he's can't. Our, we can't have that happen. He's, he's our immigrant. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of the time people don't realize that they're making those distinctions. I mean, I think that's like I, I know it's very popular to say all racists are the same and whatever, but I do actually think that a lot of that kind of. People don't think about the fact that they're thinking of certain people as other in that way. Like in that example, like they thought of that guy as one of them. And when they're thinking about the other bad people that they wanted to keep out, that was some other abstract group. Right. Yeah. It doesn't make anybody less bad or less racist to be doing this. It's just, I I guess I just feel like our perception of how people, how evil or bad things manifest is very naive in in a way that surprises Mm -hmm. me constantly. Like the, like the idea that, um, you know, if a man is like a nice guy in the community and charming with his colleagues, that he can't right. beat his wife. Right. Like it's that that kind of thing, and that's very yeah. common. Oh like, yeah. No, it couldn't be. Never. Not not right. not Joe. You know, like come on, that guy's that guy always like he coaches little league soccer. Like he couldn't possibly have done this horrible thing. And like not to here we are talking about George W. Bush. <laughs> We're very topical here on that thing. But I think what interests why I'm fascinated by it, it's not just that like I do art and I'm interested in the fact that he's doing art, but the fact that what he's painting and. The, the the subjects of his paintings interest me and so I wonder like oh does this person feel remorse that doesn't mean I'm gonna like you know vote for him to be in charge of anything anytime soon but I think that that's interesting to me if that if that is his trajectory I don't know that that's his moral trajectory but the fact that he was painting himself like in the bath and in the shower like I mean I wouldn't be the first person to comment like does he feel dirty like what's his you know this thing with cleanliness maybe not maybe he just was looking at Frida Kahlo paintings and he thought I want to be like her. Um, anyway, we'll stop talking about George Bush now. But that's where my interest lies. Is- this is an interesting conversation. Do we want to uh, move to your guys' interview? 
that you did? Oh, yes. So this week on the, on the podcast, we have, we're lucky enough to get Janae Nelson, who is the Associate Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, uh, often known as LDF. And she has been down in Texas. Um, you may or may not have heard that the voter ID laws, which are stricter in Texas than anywhere else in the country and really have been determined to be quite exclusionary, uh, that there's been a long legal battle to get those get those overturned, and the Justice Department was a co-plaintiff uh, with LDF on this until pretty recently when they decided that they were no longer going to be fighting alongside them. So uh, she has she has some interesting stories to tell from down in Texas. Cool. So let's listen to that interview. Calling us from Texas right now, or are you back in the office? I am back in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about the case that you've done in Texas working on? Sure. So I've been working on a case along with a team of LDF lawyers and uh, our co-counsel from various civil rights groups challenging what is the strictest photo identification law for voting in the country. And we've been at this fight for well over six years. It started off in an effort to try to prevent the law from being implemented at all, Mm -hmm. uh, we ultimately wound up having to fight it once it did get implemented because of a a bad voting rights decision from the Supreme Court. And uh, we've been slogging it out with the state of Texas ever since. And before recently, uh, very recently, the Department of Justice was an ally in this fight, yes? That's right. So the Department of Justice has been as you said, an ally and, and frankly, uh, you know, an aggressor in this fight um, from the very beginning. It uh, served a very key function when uh, SB 14, which is the name of the law that ultimately got passed, when that was first introduced, um, the Department of Justice objected to it going into effect because it determined that this law would be retrogressive, meaning it would put Black and Latino Texans in a worse position than they were in at the time. And so they blocked the law from going into effect. Uh, Later, in another case by the Supreme Court, Shelby County versus Holder, uh, the Supreme Court held that that mechanism for blocking laws that are uh, discriminatory uh, is, is actually no longer lawful. And at that point, Texas was freed up to begin to implement this extremely stringent um, photo identification law to the detriment of hundreds of thousands of voters. So is Texas's law uh, stricter than other states which have similar things implemented? We think it is the strictest law in the country because of the very narrow forms of identification that it permits. Um, it is It is truly exceptional in how it limits uh, voting forms. There are at least 16 other forms of ID that um, could be accepted in other states and that Texas does not accept. Um, And and it's really a a very unfortunate circumstance that Texas uh, did what, you know, we call uh, surgical crafting of this law to design it in a way that it permits identifications that African-Americans and Latinos are less likely to possess um, and that Anglo voters in Texas are more likely to possess. So it really has a disproportionate effect and the legislature intended that effect when it crafted the law. Right. And Summer here. Um, I saw that, is this right, that the under that law that student IDs are not an accessible form of identification, but gun licenses are? That's exactly right. Wow. So you, you can present a gun carry permit, but you cannot present a student identification card from a state university to show, you know, that has your photo on it, that has, you know, information that can identify you as who you are. You can't present that to vote, but you can present a gun carry permit. Hmm. And you can imagine what the demographics are of those folks who are, you know, pursuing um, a a college degree at a state school as compared to those who are seeking gun carry permits. And the racial disparity is clear and stark. You mentioned also the, the the not just that the law does discriminate, but that it had the intention to discriminate. And if I understand correctly, that's been one of the contentious issues about 
fighting against the law, that the issue of intent? That's right. Our concern right now that we dealt with on Tuesday before Judge Ramos in the federal district court in Texas is that the legislature actually intended that effect to happen. They crafted this law in a particular way, and you can see that intent in the selections of identifications that they made, in the choices of ID that they rejected, in the tenuous and shifting rationales that they provided for the law, uh, and the fact that it was clear that the law was going to have this effect, and it was foreseeable and completely avoidable, and the legislature did nothing to avoid that disparate, harsh impact. Were you surprised that the Justice Department uh, kind of pulled back from this? Well, (laughs) I was extraordinarily disappointed. As you know, the Department of Justice is charged with enforcing and upholding the civil rights laws of this country. They are the chief enforcer of our civil rights laws. And it is incredibly disappointing to see the Department of Justice pivot in any way away from that um, necessary and and vital mission to our democracy. So that was uh, a a real blow. I I can't say that it was completely unanticipated because there's (laughs) been so many changes of late that um, nothing nothing stunned you at this point. Um, But but it nonetheless what is is something that we should not expect or or come to just accept with the change of political winds. This is a mission and a charge that the Department of Justice should be following no matter what the administration is and no matter what the political climate is. What are some of the differences you anticipate you know, with this new administration? We, we obviously have significant concerns about whether voting rights will be protected, and those concerns come not only from the actions of the Department of Justice in this case, but importantly from the statements that have been made from this administration concerning false allegations of voter fraud and vote rigging. There's been a lot of pushback and blowback on you know, such reckless claims, uh, they're still out there and they still do feed uh, a certain frenzy toward making voting more difficult and more restrictive in this country right at a time when we should be doing just the opposite and trying to create a much more inclusive democracy. Right. And to be clear, that's just making sure citizens who have the right to vote are able to exercise that vote, which seems to get lost a little bit sometimes. No, that's that's exactly right. I mean, at this, you know, we, we are trying to make sure that Um, Every uh, citizen who is 18 years of age and older has unfettered access to the right to vote, and certainly that that access is not in any way abridged because of their race. Absolutely. And it seems strange to me that, you know, I have a a New York voter, and so when I go to the polls, nobody asks me for an ID, you know, Um, but it would be different if I lived in Texas. That's absolutely right. And I think, you know, New York is such a good example to show how voting can work in a much more simplistic and secure way. Uh, Using signature verification is a method that's used in in places like this big city that we live in and vote in. (laughs) And um, and, and there there are virtually no instances of impersonation voter fraud to speak of. And similarly in Texas, you don't see that, um, that there's been any impersonation fraud of any significance, and yet the state of Texas was fixated on limiting voting rights to prevent this illusory problem. So when you hear statements from the top, uh, for instance, about the Massachusetts voters that were you know, shipped into New Hampshire to, to upset things, do you, uh, a lot of people just dismiss that as well, that this is, this is crazy talk. Do you feel like this was kind of setting the stage for uh, a more national strategy of, of enacting these types of laws that they have in Texas? Absolutely. And, and I fear that it could be setting the table for even more pernicious actions. When you suggest that there's been voter fraud and vote rigging and people shipping uh, busloads of voters in, uh, it, it, it creates a fear and it creates a lack of faith in the integrity of our election systems that is a pathway toward uh, all manner of voter intimidation and all manner of restrictions that I think do such a significant disservice to um, the, the people of this country who have fought for so many decades to open and expand the franchise. And this is a giant step backwards when we start to feed those uh, base fears that can lead to in- incredible restrictions. And we've seen that happen in the past when right. when you talk about ballot integrity that has uh, enabled 
different states and locales to enact literacy tests and poll taxes and grandfather clauses and all sorts of devices that serve to limit our democracy and limit the participation um, of, of the most vulnerable in our society. Yeah, obviously, you know, you're mentioning literacy tests and these other things that have you know, stood in the way of voting in the past decades. Um, obviously, it's been used as a tool for racial discrimination in voting. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the historical significance of voter ID laws like the one in Texas. Sure. So that is something that was actually quite central to the case to talk about the, the history of discrimination uh, on which this law rests. And and the reason that we had to go back to the district court, the trial court, to talk about intentional discrimination again is because the circuit court, the Court of Appeals, uh, took issue with how much reliance there was on Texas's long ago history. Um, and, and while we disagree with that finding and we think that even long ago history is relevant to setting the stage for what happens today, particularly when there is an unbroken chain of discriminatory acts as there have been in Texas's election processes. The interesting thing about Texas, though, is that we don't have to rely on discrimination dating back hundreds of years. We can look to many contemporary actions on the part of the very legislature that enacted uh, this strict photo ID law um, to uh, recent efforts to require that candidates have certain property uh, ownership or that there's pre-registration citizenship requirements. All of those are of extremely recent vintage. Um, these are efforts that the state of Texas has made to try to limit the franchise in a very racially discriminatory manner. In, in a general way, how is LDF gearing up for the fight ahead? Well, we are sharpening our tools. We are, <laughs> we are <Right. laughs> pumping our muscles. We are... Um, we are being extraordinarily vigilant and making sure that we not only stay true to our mission of advancing uh, uh, rights in in ways that can continue to transform our democracy to um, to meet its ideals, but that we also defend the gains that we've won in the past that are so threatened and under attack. And a lot of that has to do with making sure that the truth is um, disseminated widely and clearly because there are so many falsehoods being perpetuated about um, about you know individuals and particular groups and about our democracy and freedoms. And it is incredibly important that that we stay true to our mission of not only defending rights but also of education. I don't know if there's anything that you can recommend to sort of regular people that want to uh, better educate themselves about voting rights in their area or how they can support um, the the LDF or organizations or organizations like it. Absolutely. So one of the things that could be incredibly helpful um, in protecting voting rights going forward is to let organizations like the Legal Defense Fund know the moment that you see any you know incursions on the right to vote. So if you see that, for example, as we've seen in various places, that a polling site is being moved from a public school to a police precinct, or you see that polling sites are being closed, or that there are perpetually long lines at a particular place where voting happens, um, or you notice that uh, your local legislature is beginning to enact laws that you know, require more um, forms of ID or, or other restrictions on being able to exercise the franchise. Uh, we used to have a mechanism where we would get notice of these types of changes from certain parts of the country. We no longer have that. And so we need your listeners to be our eyes and ears on the ground and to contact us. Um, and there's a wonderful, wonderful brochure that that we have um, that you can get on our website. It's called Democracy Diminished, and it outlines all of the different changes that have occurred since the Supreme Court took away that that mechanism for preventing bad laws from going into effect. It tells you all the different changes that have happened since then, including this strict voter ID law in Texas. Um, and it tells you how to get in touch with us in order to let us know if there are any local changes in your jurisdiction that we should be aware of. Do you anticipate that there will be have to be a little bit of triage with your organization, uh, being that these types of laws might start popping up in a bunch of different states all at once? Might you have to pick which battles that you engage in? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's important to to um, prioritize, and we obviously are extremely concerned about those laws that tend to dis- disenfranchise minority voters in particular. Um, we are not only fighting against the strict photo ID law in Texas, but also Alabama's photo identification law, mm-hmm. um, and and we are. Uh, you know, supportive of the other efforts to challenge laws uh, like the one in North Carolina and, and Wisconsin. And there are many other places that also have photo identification laws that are uh, ultimately suppressing voters from from turning out and, and, and exercising their vote in robust numbers. You've done some work on um, racially motivated redistricting as well. Is, that, is the organization doing any work related to that? Yes, we're gearing up for the 2020 redistricting cycle. As you know, every 10 years there's a census and with the new population count, new new district lines need to be drawn to determine not only your, your local lawmakers, but also your uh, federal lawmakers. And that is an area in which LDF has a very long and storied and successful history defending against racial gerrymanders and also promoting um, districts that enable uh, minorities to elect candidates of their choice. So we will be gearing up for that. We're already in the throes of <laughs> of setting our eyes on that battle. And and it all goes hand in hand, right? I mean, it's it's important that we defend um, these these districts and engage in the districting process. And and but that's not the only step. Once that happens, we also need to ensure that voters in those districts are able to turn out and vote without uh, without any significant barriers. So all of this is part of a broader whole of ensuring access to our democracy. Yeah. Do you think that the the lack of protections, you know, the end of the Voting Rights Act and all that is part of what contributed to sort of the major shift in politics that we've seen recently? Well, this is a bit of a leading question. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly in 2013, when we lost um, the the uh, enforcement of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which really allowed our federal government to, to be a check on our democracy and keep some of the worst laws from coming into play, uh, once we saw that that um, protection lifted, states within hours, literally, t- states like Florida and Alabama and Texas, you know, immediately uh, resurrected laws that had been thrown into the dustbins of history as discriminatory and and uh, having no place in our democracy. They dusted them off and implemented them. And that certainly, uh, we believe, had a significant impact on the ability of voters to to turn out in robust numbers in this past election, um, and 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 it and it served to discourage people from participating in our democracy. And voting isn't uh, your only mission; the only thing that you're working on. You're also, as as far as I know, uh, LDF is also involved in school desegregation cases. Is that correct? That's right. No, the Legal Defense Fund has uh, four main practice areas, and of course, you know, we we engage in a lot of intersectional work as well. Um, we have always focused on education, um, and many know our, our seminal case, Brown versus Board of Education, which ended segregation in public schools in 1954, uh, led by our founder, Thurgood Marshall. We also um, operate in the area of criminal justice, from policing reform to, um, to death penalty work, and we just won a case uh, before the Supreme Court just last week, the decision came down in Buck versus Davis, and we were thrilled that the court saw that a, a that a racially discriminatory death sentence, you know, had had no place in our society. Um, we also do a lot of work around economic justice, and uh, we we challenge criminal backgrounds checks, and we challenge uh, predatory lending, and we challenge many other ways in which um, uh, minorities and 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 young people and impoverished people are harmed by the economic policies of our country. Well, um, it seems like you definitely have your hands full. I appreciate you taking even some time to talk to us on this podcast here today. Well, thank you. It's always good to to, um, talk about these issues and, and have a forum like this one to um, you know, to speak to people. Yeah, thanks so much. Maybe sometime down live we can get an update on how some of these things are progressing. I would love that. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me.
what I thought was so interesting uh, in talking to her about this is this is one of the points that worries me so much about going into this administration sort of long term is the integrity of voting. And um, it's it's great to see that there are obviously there are people working on this, you know, dealing with count, trying to counter racially motivated gerrymandering and and all that. I think it's like it's it's easy to argue in some ways that like gerrymandering and voter ID and all this kind of stuff and uh, just uh, bad voting laws in general. There's a good argument to be made that like that's the maybe the most important thing. Like everything else depends on that in some ways. You know, it's like if you can't mm-hmm. get that right. Well, it's a found. It's like the foundation of the house. I mean, it yeah. doesn't mean that you don't need. Like, you still need to safeguard your windows so your kids don't fall out of them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But like, yeah. or or whatever. But yeah. like, yeah. You, you, you if if you're not like everything is at stake, everything's in danger. If if your if your yeah. house is gonna collapse, you know what I mean. So which is I how I see the voting stuff. And like um like um as Nelson said, it's basically just trying to make sure that the people who have the right to vote are able to exercise that it's right. Very it's very simple. Um, or it should be simple, um, but it unfortunately obviously isn't, and there's a long history of trying to prevent people who have the right to vote from voting. Uh, I heard somebody interesting. I read, I read a piece recently that said that if uh, there is not good success with overturning these laws that are so, so obviously biased, uh, that the next step is going to have to be for the next election is just figuring out a new plan of making sure that everybody follows those rules, you know, like a big, that, that we'll probably see a huge initiative of actually, you know, getting IDs made for different communities. That... Right. Like, you know, she mentioned in Texas with these ID laws, the certain, you know, you can't use a student ID, but you can use like a gun license permit or whatever. And to, and for some of these residents, they have to travel like over a hundred miles to get this thing. And yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay, so how do we make it happen where there's enough people with vehicles right. to go out and do this at a time when people can, you know, manage with whatever job yeah. or jobs they have, you know, to to go and get these. And no, you're right. I mean, it's of course um, the principle of it is you need you absolutely need to fight right. the discriminatory laws. But at the same time, you also have to like yeah. you know, the plan B is okay. You want to make it more difficult? Let's help them. Like plan A, plan B. Right. Always good to have multiple plans. Um, should we wrap it up here? I really like the interview that Jesse did with Joss Whedon. <laughs> I want to link <laughs> oh, to it. Oh, <laughs> that's nice. Thank you. No, it was great, and I I, um, I enjoyed reading it. And I think that um, his his like I need to be in bed and eat cake like happened right, right. after the election. Like that was the sort of modes. And for me, it came like a bit more around inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> like I was one of the people that fairly quickly after the election was. No, I don't know if it was like here's what we need to do, but I was very like focused and um, in in it sort of at least mentally and yeah, it was more around inauguration that I was like, or I'll just not ever get out of bed ever. <laughs> no, totally. But, um, and and it's funny he, he's so I've I've been doing these profiles for Good Magazine uh, of different people who are involved in resistance in some way or another. Maxine Waters, we will link to them. yeah, Ma- Maxine Waters and uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who also works at. NAACP LDF uh, and I J- Joss has been so vocal on Twitter about you know his feelings about all of this that yeah. you know like and and he's got a pretty loud megaphone so t- talking to him it was interesting at first I was like he's saying things like I'm giving up I just can't get I just <laughs> yeah. can't get out of bed I just want to eat cake and I'm like oh this isn't good but then I realized you know what there's there's a certain relatability to all of this that a lot of people are probably feeling like oh my god I'm alone in my my grief and my fear and my anxiety right now and here's this person that I've looked up to forever and he just is eating cake so i think that right. <laughs> i think that's helpful in a different way <laughs> yeah and i don't I, you know i made jokes to friends about it that like when you have to kind of take yourself act, out of the action a little bit especially if you're very involved either because you work as an activist or you're just somebody that's emotionally invested you know every day all day about this stuff right um I think I joked to someone that it was like I needed some field hospital time. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're out in the action, and then sometimes you need to like retreat a bit to go, to go back. So take us home, summer. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. I mean, it's uh, what a mess. Like I, I don't. I mean, I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but it is a mess. Things are dark and scary and weird and confusing, and it's different than it was a couple months ago. Like I personally feel a little more disconnected, but. You know, you can always get reconnected. I, I I feel that way too. It's it's strange. Like I've I, I've still been doing all the stuff that I've been doing, but I do feel weirdly weirdly disconnected. Disconnected from politics, from what's going on. I guess in some ways, like disconnected from my outrage, 
in a weird way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like hard to keep up the level of of outrage, uh-huh. even if I feel it on a on a basic level. Um, like to express it constantly, I don't know. I don't know that it's sustainable. As I said, I think people need to fall out of love with their outrage yeah. a little bit. And I think that maybe we need a more sustainable fuel yeah. than outrage. I mean, you know, I I guess, like, outrage, what would that, I mean, just a sense of injustice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, the, you know, you don't have to, in a way, it's like that's sort of the test is can you stay focused on working towards, you know, making... <laughs> Sounds so cheesy, making the world better without having that like sort of adrenaline kick of outrage. Like, you know, it's not healthy to have that all the time. It's bad for your adrenal system. Like, you know, you like literally. So I guess it's just I think that's what a lot of people have been doing, hopefully are doing, is finding ways to just keep going. That's where the defend your hill kind of argument comes in, I think really meaningfully, is what are your projects that you're focusing on? And uh, here, here, here we go. We're all just slogging along. So see you. <laughs> Our new catchphrase. We're all. We're just all just slogging along. along. <laughs> here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Hey everyone, it's Summer again. Thanks so much for listening this week, and a big thanks to Janae Nelson of the Legal Defense Fund for joining us. If you liked what you heard, you can help us out by becoming a patron on Patreon. Uh, you can go to our website, the451.com. That's the451.com. And there you'll find information on sponsoring us and also getting in touch by email or by phone to leave us a voicemail. Uh, you can also leave us a review on iTunes, and that helps out uh, quite a lot as well. So uh, thanks a lot, and have a great week.